Now the shotgun start in golf is full of mathematics. Um, there's a lot of a lot of setup work that we have to do in order to make a tournament work. So I'm going to demonstrate to you just exactly how we do a shotgun start here. And here we go. All right, all right, all right. Gentlemen, start your Greetings and welcome to a special spotlight edition of the Shotgun Start. It is June 13th. Andy, how are we doing? Brendan, I am uh, I'm doing well. Digging digging the heels back into the spotlight, a player spotlight. It's been a little while since we did one of these. It's a reminder of last year this time when we were just cranking them out at a ridiculous pace because there was nothing else to do. I don't know how we, uh, I don't know why or how we did that at that pace. Um, the one where we did like four, four in a row, like four episodes in a row, four in like an eight day stretch, it boggles my mind. Ernie L's. Yeah, but we're back. This, this is a monster one too. We are doing the spotlight on Lee Trevino. It will be two parts. There's no way. We could probably, we could do it in one part. It would just be, you know, a four-hour episode four hour or something slot. like that. Um, we will obviously miss things. Torino's a titan of the game. Story is kind of completely unique. Uh, probably won't get every detail right. Won't get every detail included. But we, we made a, an honest effort of it. We'll uh, miss some details. Research. We'll probably meander on other details longer than we need to. Sure. But- Sure. This is the way of the spotlights. If you haven't been with us for a player spotlight, please, please explore our back catalog. They are, uh, they are labors of love. We learn so much. They're so fun, um, and they require quite a bit of work. You know, I've I've been on the road, and I get home. You know, I've been on the road for a week, and a ton of the last month, I get home and <laughs> tell my wife this morning. Listen, I. I cannot be bothered this morning. I mean, <laughs> felt like um, I was cramming for a test here. Yeah. I felt like I was going back to college, completely yep. ill-prepared, cramming for a test. But we're here. Part we're one. Brought, and it's brought to you by that work is made possible, underwritten, supported by the U.S. Open Victory Club. Uh, you can join that at usopen.com slash victory club. They have supported several of these spotlights. We did one before the Women's Open on Birdie Kim. Uh, or more generally on the 2005 U.S. Women's Open. This one's on Lee Trevino, a two-time winner of the U.S. Open, a qualifier who made his way through qualifying. Uh, did not win the year he qualified, but kind of his origin story is Blaze, at the U.S. Blaze's Open, his right? Blazed his career like, through yeah. the U.S. Open, yeah. which is you know the most absurd thing to think about. Like your career basically the, just just these pathways born through the U.S. Right. Open, right? Um, so join and the victory makes club. The, and- uh, makes the corn fairy tour thing just absolutely more ridiculous. <laughs> we can we can reheat those takes if you want. Um, for it's been four uh, years of reheating those takes at usopen.com/slash victory club, uh, it costs zero dollars to do it. You get early access to tickets for the U.S. Women's Open and the U.S. Open. So I don't know if you're in 
New England, the Boston area where they're going next year, Pine Needles for the Women's Open. Maybe this is a thing you join. I, I used it to get tickets for Olympic for my cousins. You get virtual fan experiences you can't get anywhere else. You get limited edition merchandise only available to club members. And you get upgraded You're probably experiences. wondering, how much does it cost? I and think the answer I just is said. nothing. This is all free. Like you literally, if it, hey, the U.S. Open's not in your neck of the woods this year, sign up because maybe it's in your neck of the woods next year or the next year. And you the want only tickets, thing it'll cost so you is an email. Occasional yeah. email that maybe bugs you. I don't know, but yeah, it doesn't join really up. Buy, they they don't spam either. This is, yeah. they send pertinent stuff. Yep, yep, yep. All right. So thanks to them, thanks to USGA for uh, sponsoring these. But let's get into it. Lee Trevino, right. Lee Buck Trevino, again, complete character, one of the all-time greats in golf. We've missed something, you know, we'll maybe supplement it with sort of Instagram stories and things like that. If you DM, you know, facts that jumped out to you, I know when I teased it, people started sending in stories. We won't get everything, but uh, we're going to take uh, our best we got crack. Part we think two, you'll too. enjoy it. Yeah. We don't know when part two is going to air, but we do know it will air eventually. <laughs> Next but year, part- before Brookline, maybe. We'll see. I don't know. Here's All part right. one. Curry Kirkpatrick uh, wrote a great, great piece. There, uh, there's a lot of Jenkins SI work. Curry Kirkpatrick wrote a piece after Trevino won the Sportsman of the Year in 71 in Sports Illustrated. Um, there's a documentary uh, on the USGA's uh, YouTube page, the best YouTube golf YouTube page, bar none, without a doubt, is the USGA's YouTube page. There is so much good stuff. I mean, I just type Lee Trevino in there and I was very pleased to see a, a 50 minute film on him. Um, so Curry Kirkpatrick from sports illustrated. This is 1971. Uh, what Lee Trevino has done is take the game out of the country club boardroom and put it in the parking lot where everybody, not just doctors and lawyers, but Indian chiefs too can get at it. Trevino's special appeal is to the po- to the poor, the minorities, the people who before his emergence as a star could never really make a reality of golf the way they could of baseball, say, or football or boxing. This distinction is never more apparent than when Trevino stands against the other eminences of the game, Palmer and Nicholas, Casper and Player. So I think that's uh, kind of sums up beyond, obviously, the outstanding accolades on the golf course that we'll get into what Trevino meant. Trevino was the working man and came, you know, really became the first superstar minority golfer um, that the sport had seen and was, you know, a rags and riches story. We've seen it with the likes of VJ Singh and other players, but Trevino really, you know, was just, it is just an incredible story and, and became, you know, me- uh, Mexico's golfer. Yeah, I, I. One other thing, personally speaking, this is by far the oldest, kind of going back the farthest that we've done. Right? I mean, for a spot like that, the, when we started these last year, right? It was kind of that. Like, I, I guess Crenshaw would have been the oldest, and he won a major in 1995. So it's like we did that era of like 80s, 90s. This one, because of his U.S. Open history, we, and obviously just his general character of the game, like something personally for us. I'm 38, you're what, 35, 34? Like, we are aware of Trevino. We're aware of his record, aware of the personality. Happy Gilmore is a movie we've seen before with mixed reviews, depending on who you talk to. But, like, 
We personally didn't get to see him. You know, we saw a little senior tour golf, but that's it. This is about as far back as we go. So reading about him, and, and I would imagine some of our audience is older than us. Some of it's younger. Much of it's probably right in our age. So hopefully this is, is edifying in a way, uh, understanding a like some history of the game, but certainly one of the characters of the game. Mm-hmm. So that's so, a good background. Let's do the primer. We, uh, what do we got? We do, we'll go down the career rundown here. Yep. Lee Buck Trevino. The Mary How Max. How do you get Buck? How do you get Buck in there? Amazing middle name. But all right, Lee Buck. Syllable efficiency. I love it. Also notice the Mary Max and Super Max. Now, I will say that this is going to be a uh, a little precursor. The um, Just generally, society was a little different. Sports writing was a little different. There are... <laughs> Is extreme, you know, what today would be considered extreme racism in many of these quotes that we'll pull from these articles. Um, it was a sign of the times. You know, he was obviously, you know, the first prominent Mexican uh, a golfer of Mexican descent. He was born in America. He's American, but, you know, of Mexican descent. Um, so, you know, just keep in mind, these are other people's words, not ours. Um, Dan Jenkins, nineteen seventy, kind of yes. writing. You know, you probably wouldn't get to print this this day and age. So, um, right. fans fans of Trevino were called Lee's fleas. Yeah, another thing that probably wouldn't, wouldn't go today. Yeah, probably re- be rebranded in twenty twenty one. I would say. Okay. Uh, he was born in Garland, Texas. He had two sisters. Um, we'll get into his backstory. It was not one of. Uh, he was not pampered in the silver spoon. He was quite the furthest from that. Uh, he turned pro in 1960 after a, a stint in the Marines. He had 29 PGA Tour wins in his career, four other European Tour wins. I'm subtracting the Open Championship, which they count as both, uh, two of which were European Tour PGAs, which are obviously their so-called major um, mm-hmm. huge tournaments. One Japan tour win, one Sunshine tour win, one Australasia tour win. The man won on uh, every continent, every continent that hosted golf, except uh, yeah, Antarctica. Antarctica. Only one didn't win on six continent winner. That's a uh, that's a rarity. All right, maybe he didn't win in South America. I don't know if he won in South America. Actually, I don't think he did. So five continent winner. Two Mexican Opens, two World Cup wins, one of which he won the individual also, two Texas State Open titles, two New Mexico Open titles. He played across the border because he was an El Paso range uh, driving range pro. He'd play switch border uh, a lot there. Um, yep. 29 senior tour uh, wins, which four of which are majors. Also important part, six major tour major victories, non-senior tour, six majors. Um, his 10-year run, his best 10 years, this is what we kind of uh, always do. We d- dissolve it down into a 10-year run, which you, is amazing. If you look at almost every great player, you can... There's a 10-year run where they're better than every other run. It, it seems to be a trend. He had 258 starts. His 10 years were from 68 to 77. Now, important note in there, um, 1975, he was struck by lightning, which significantly hindered his career. Yeah. Um, and we'll get it into that in more in part two, but that uh, changed his career forever. Um, yeah. 
Ten-year run, 258 starts, 22 wins, 17 seconds, 19 thirds, 105 total top fives, and only 17 missed cuts. So he made the cut 93% of the time he played, 8.5% of the time he won, 15% of the time he was in the top two, 22% of the time in the top three, and 41% of the time he played golf in this 10-year run, he finished in the top 10. Um, Pretty solid. Won a won a major outside that that ten year run. Won the eighty four PGA. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating that his first win on tour was a major, and his last win on tour was a major. You know, it's the U.S. Open was his first. You know, the sixty eight U.S. Open, and then he wins the eighty four PGA, and that was it. I mean, he obviously had a long senior tour career, twenty nine wins out there. But it's kind of I wonder if we'll see that ever again. You know, where yeah, even just your first win being a major is rare, right? Unless you're obviously a one and done kind of flame out, but to have a, a stud that it, it's interesting. I, I thought that was unique. We don't see that too much. You, you get no. like a speed, speed will win the deer or things like that, you know, but you get some, some action there, but it's rare to see that for an all time. What, what every major, except for the masters, which was, uh, <laughs> we'll get into that. Did not like Augusta national regretted some not. things he said about it, but yeah, back and forth. Um, Um, 10 year major run. This is 68 to 77. He had five wins, five wins in 10 years, four other top fives. Something I found interesting was weren't that many close calls. Lots of what he won when he got in the mix. Interesting. Kind of a little Faldo-y in that sense, both with six, but you know, they, they didn't scare it as much as they, you know, they, they took advantage. And that's something you, you got to give credit where credit's due. Took advantage um, of, of the opportunities. He had two second place finishes uh, or four other top fives, three other top tens, three missed cuts and 33 starts. And you're probably wondering why only 33 starts and 10 year run. He obviously he didn't play the open the year he won the U.S. Open in 68. And then he he boycotted the Masters a few years, and then he had complications with the lightning strike in the back half of this ten year run. So definitely, in terms of great players, thirty three starts in the ten year window is uh, among the fewest. Um, you know, Curtis Strange had I think I want to say it was like thirty five or thirty six, which was because he, he didn't want to get a, go over to the Open Championship, which he later right. said was one of his biggest regrets. Um, one of an interesting, you know, just overall in majors, six wins, two seconds, one third, 22 top tens and 89 events, 70 made cuts. So pretty good. Pretty amazing. Pretty good. Um, four of his major wins, Jack Nicholas finished runner up. Yeah. He was Jack's kind of major foil Adversary. there for at least five years of it. Right. You know, you always hear that famous Jack quote about his thirds and his runner ups outside of the 18 majors. Well, Trevino contributed to four of those. So, um, and, uh, it, I mean, this was, we'll get into this a little later, but this was like Jack Nicholas heyday. I mean, when, yeah, this is Jack Nicholas rattled off 11 major wins in a, you know, in a, in a short window. And many of which were right in the Trevino era, um, which Trevino was going blow to blow. And I think, you know, when, when we talk about kind of this, Really through seventy four, um, you know everybody talks about player Palmer and Nicholas is the big three. Lee Trevino was probably the second best player of in in 
for a five year span um, with Jack, and arguably, arguably, could you you probably could make an argument that he could be the best player of a couple year run with Jack Nicholas, Gary Player, Billy Casper, and Arnold Palmer all in their primes. So Casper, another forgot, so not forgotten, but obviously over overshadowed. Not the character that was Trevino, but Casper mm-hmm. also just dominated in this stretch. Uh, uh, five-time Varden uh, award winner, which is lowest scoring average. Five times. Yeah. You have the uh, years? I don't have them written. 70, 71, 72, 74. So like that five-year run you're talking about. And then 80. He threw one in there late five times in, in Varden. But four of them were 70 to 74. So He won the money title only once, which I think, you know, I think this is uh, something when with players of a little bit lesser upbringing, the money title, when you hear them talk about it, is really, really important to them. Yeah. The one thing, like so much of this writing in the 70s, late 60s, even the, like the, all the writing is framed around this, where they are on the money title, how much yes. money they've made, how much that tournament's for, like constant, like constant. Like if you are having a good year, it is all based on money title and how much money you've made like Trevino's the first, like it's just every paragraph. Well, That's how they gauge a year or your your status in the game in that week or that year. The other thing, like this is kind of where the tour's gotten is everything's the same because the FedEx Cup, everything's yeah. the same. The points are the yeah. same week in, week out. But you know what what got the best players in the world to show up at places in the seventies? Money. Yeah. So yeah. the best tournament fields would be played for the most money. And it right. ma- naturally makes a ton of sense that like the more money you play for, the more great players are going to show up. Yeah. And I think that's why it, it was such a better barometer than it is now where everything's kind of the same. If you scaled all of this stuff based off of strength of field these days, it would look so much. The FedEx cup would look a lot different than it looks now. Um, but because you know, and I think this was such a more accurate depiction because these guys needed to play a lot. All the guys played 27, 28 events a year versus the 20 they play now because oh, yeah. they went around the country and played at the places that gave out the most money. Yeah, this probably part one will end with the end of 1971, which is a, I found a fun article on the Westchester Classic, which like everybody went to because it had the richest prize. Like uh, it's it, it's. Purely money play. Like Palmer would come back. Everybody would. Palmer skipped the open in '71, and then went and played that. So uh, um, we should talk. So he wins Sportsman of the Year, Sports Illustrated Sportsman of the Year, 1971. AP Male Athlete of the Year, 1971. PGA Player of the Year, 1971. So we're talking about 1971 being one of the greatest seasons in golf history where you've you transcend golf and are named the you know best athlete of the year in all of sports that that is something very 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 few golfers have achieved before so that's not the oldest award but it goes back to the mid 50s roger bannister was the first one the only golfers before him to earn it were arnold palmer 1960 and uh, Ken Venturi won it in 64, which I thought was surprising. Maybe because of like the circumstances around that. And then you had Trevino was the third. He won it after Bobby Orr, 
and before Billie Jean King and John Wooden were the year out. So, I mean, just golfers didn't, Nicholas didn't get it until 78. So, I mean, Trevino, obviously, we'll get to this 1971 season that landed him such a an honor. But, yeah, it, it was, like you said, he was a primary player in the entire general sports world, bursting out of the scene late 60s, early 70s. All right, upbringing. Can I throw uh, in a couple yeah. other yeah. nuts and bolts stuff? Um, so in the 80s, he was second on the PGA Tour's career money list behind only Nicholas. From 68 to 81, inclusive, he won at least one PGA Tour event every year. So 14 straight seasons, he won at least once. And he won oh, more five, than 20. Five Ryder tw- Cups, too. Yep. And he won more than 20 international unofficial. So that's like 68 to 81, a little longer than your uh, your... 10-year run, but every year for 14 years is an achievement in and of itself. Career uh, World Golf Hall of Fame in 81. He's only one of only four to twice win the the uh, two Opens and the PGA. So, like, not the career slam, but, you know, the, the non-master is double dip. The, uh, the non-invitational. Yeah, that's slam. true. That's true. Um, um, six, six Ryder Cups. My bad. One captaincy, six Ryder Cups. I found this interesting. He's one of only two golfers, and this gets to 1971, to win the PGA Tour's three oldest events in the same year, which is the Open, the U.S. Open, and the Canadian Open in 1904. He won that in 71. Took until 2000 with Tiger. 2000 Tiger Woods was the second player to join him. This 71 season we're talking about when he's sports person of the year. A couple other personal items. He's 5'7". Well, there's no height as a topic of conversation around here. So, So he's... I don't know if that's short or not, but uh, a lot of people talk about his stature. Uh, talking about being squat. He married a woman. I thought this was interesting. Mar- he's twice married. Both times, a woman was named Claudia. Isn't that bizarre? Like, how do you go back to the well with that? Like, it's his like first the people marriage- that name their dogs the same thing. It, it, it's like, Oh, does that happen? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. I just like, his first marriage was very short. I think Claudia the first figured out like he was... Was not up for the whole golf life. Like, oh wow, you really love golf, huh? And and that didn't last long. Uh, second wife. They had was, one yeah. one kid with the Claudia one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I thought this was amusing somewhat. His career high money total. I mean, uh, this is escalation. It happens. His career high money total came in 1994, when he won 1.2 million dollars in six titles and was named Senior Tour Player of the Year. So his career high money total came on the senior tour. He won one point two million. So again, this was more of the point of the senior tour, though, when he was in his heyday. All right, let's get into uh, his upbringing. This is obviously a massive part of his story. It's not like his on-course record or anything, but this is part of the personality. This is Curry Kirkpatrick. I think his, you know, Kirkpatrick did the nineteen seventy-one. SI Sports Person of the Year profile. It's always like a big honor, big article. The person, you know, nowadays I think writers nominate who they cover. And that's, you know, the cyclist writer nominates Lance Armstrong, things like that. But Curry Kirkpatrick wrote the year ender on his 1971. Lee Buck Trevino was born out of wedlock on December 1st, 1939. He was raised by his maternal grandfather, Joe Trevino, an immigrant from Monterey and his mother, Juanita, in an old maintenance shack on the outskirts of Dallas. So that's Garland, Texas, you mentioned. Uh, Maintenance shack, to be clear, several references, no indoor plumbing, no electricity, no running water. Yep. Uh, Old Joe, so his grandpa, 
with maternal grandpa, was a grave digger at Hillcrest Cemetery and a beer drinker of astounding durability. Great writing. Beer drinker of astounding durability. Who Lee says, quote, was the only man I ever knew who could sit in a bar from nine in the morning to nine at night, then get up and drive away. Just one of those, like, I don't know, Mick Ultra. I don't encourage drinking and driving, but, you know, just, I don't know. Every bar is, or every beer is just kind of a mosquito bite to old Joe, apparently. Uh, also, he was, Joe Trevino was one of those rare individuals who stopped working only because it was time to die. That was two years ago when his grandson buried him uh, at Hillcrest, where he was a grave digger. In the old days, <clears throat> in the Trevino shack, devoid of electricity or plumbing, it sat in a hayfield off the Glen Lakes golf course, where the skinny little now, Mexican... I think it's now um, Dallas Athletic Club. So, yeah. I, I saw Dallas Athletic. I saw... Yeah, I, I think that's right. Adjacent that's to the right. sixth hole at Dallas Athletic Club. This was yeah. in the USGA Trevino store. Okay. okay. I saw some different conflicting... Glen Lakes is no more, but it, yeah. I saw Dallas Athletic reference as well. Skinny little Mexican boy used to scavenge for balls. For an early golf indoct- indoctrination... He hit horse apples with a, an abandoned five iron and played putting games with his grandfather in the yard. It was a lonely life, he said. I was never around anybody. I was all by myself, no one to talk to. I would just hunt rabbits and fish. Um, he finally quit school in the eighth grade to help finance the simple luxury of food for his family, which included two sisters, which you mentioned. Quote, starches are cheap and Mexicans are usually overweight because they eat starches, he says. I never knew what steak was. The closest we ever came to real meat was Texas hash and bologna. We drank Kool-Aid. He worked at Glen Lakes before taking a job at a Hardy Greenwoods driving range in Pit and Putt, Pitch and Putt in North Dallas. Um, and so this is the, this Greenwood guy kind of became a mentor of sorts. They had a for a while falling for a falling out, a, a definite falling out. That was a um, crazy story. I mean, I think we'll probably get into it. That. He, I didn't. Never. We'll get into it. In a what? Bit. How he oh, you like? Get into it. How he like banned him from? He like barred him. He badmouthed him to keep him from turning pro. Well, yeah, he wanted Trevino wanted to get like certified with the PGA, and Greenwood wouldn't like verify like, that he worked him. his papers yeah. and stuff. He wouldn't verify that he worked for him, and it, like hung up his PGA application. Um. What else do we want to talk about here? Uh, he began caddying at the club when he was eight, and he took up the game kind of with the other caddies. Obviously, you know there was some like there was reference to like there's, a few holes outside yeah, the back of the three, caddy yard, a three-hole course behind the caddy shack where he started playing. Okay, yeah, I have seventh fairway of Dallas Athletic Club was a hundred yards from their front door. Um, so know, he he details. began finding golf balls in the course. If you're writing an article, don't cite. Either of those. A lot of times they also say his uncle gave him a few golf balls in an old golf club. He, he would sneak onto the grounds at what was then Glen Lakes, but also caddy. Uh, he left school at 814 to go work, earned $30 a week as a caddy and a shoe shiner. Um, he was able to practice golf because they had three short holes behind the caddy shack, and he would hit like 300 balls a day with like, struck what they talk about struck from bare ground you know the hard pan of texas and and windy texas hard pan and they said this is kind of a legend part of the legend is this is where he developed his like distinct unique kind of compact swing Um, seems like every every player from texas's swing is 
thanks to the the Texas win. The hard, the hard <laughs> yeah. like they really single do. Player, no, it doesn't matter how they hit it. Oh well, you know, it's, it's, it's playing battle in those Texas wins. You know, I feel like Ryan Palmer. They talk about all the time. Yeah, that is kind of they lean on that a lot, a little maybe too much. Uh, also, he spent time. Uh, helping his family earn money growing onions and cotton in the nearby dusty fields surrounding their home. Uh, obviously, his dad was absent. Don't, never do his dad. There was zero golfing tradition in the family. Like his, his grandpa gave him a club and some balls, but, but that was it. Um, at 17, he enlisted in the Marines and went off to the Pacific. He was a gunner, I think. Um, Okinawa. In Okinawa. Uh he goes, you know, Greenwood kind of got at him, right? He was a drinker and he was, you know, a teenager, right? He, and a lot of his friends kind of fell out or I don't know if he had friends necessarily, but people from his similar station like got in trouble and, and never went anywhere. So in order to avoid this, he enlisted with the Marines. He needed direction. He goes, I was messed up and lost. I wasn't settled down. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Never had any dates. I'd fall in love with a fence post. As a machine gunner in the Far East, he found camaraderie that he never knew at home. He had friends, people to talk to, duties and responsibilities. Quote, it was like camping out. I volunteered for everything. These were guys my own age, and we were having a ball. Um, he enjoyed the experience so much, he, he re-upped for two more years. He was assigned to special services, where he spent the rest of his tour playing golf and teaching rifle range classes on Okinawa. Quote, maybe it was the best time of my life. I think I learned... I think I learned my sense of humor in the Marines, laughing and raising hell. And of course, there was golf. If I hadn't joined, I know I'd be in prison today. Uh, he got out of the Marine Corps in 1960 and went back to Dallas with only one purpose, to play golf. Um, should we continue kind of with his, his upbringing, uh, kind of his, his pathway yeah. to professional golf? Um, that was He enlisted on his 17th ber- birthday, obviously. Uh, he, he would spend like kind of all afternoons the last 18 months in the Marines playing golf with the officers. Yeah. Uh, I think he played he with Orville like a Moody. Marine, Marine right? golf team or something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know exactly what that entailed, but yep. that's what he was on. Um, all right, let's continue on. Uh, so he goes back to Dallas. He's like, I'm just, I'm going back to play golf four years in the Marines. Uh, this is Kirkpatrick again in 71. He, he has cultivated an image as a transcendent hustler. Far beyond what his friends in Dallas remember as the truth when he kind of got back. A hustler he is not, and a hustler he has never been, said his friend uh, Salinas. I forget the gentleman's first name. Um, another guy who's trying to play pro golf. To hustle is to deceive. So, like, we hear this all the time, right? Oh, he, he got to golf. Like, we make these stories up. We make these myths out of players. Quote, to hustle is to, to deceive. Lee was just there with his game. And everybody knew it. They came over and said, I want four aside. And Lee said, you got it. That's no hustle. He made the games hard and forced himself to play his best. Is something you want to say? Yeah, he no, just no. beat. Yeah, he just beat people. I no, know. You're not He's a hustler because you beat him because you're good. He was just good. Gave yeah. people the shots they wanted and just beat them. <laughs> I think like maybe because it wasn't a country club or it's like the Muni. It's like probably because people out over. Hustle. I think what it is is people probably overlooked him because of his physical stature, his the fact that he was a Mexican uh, of descent, and yep. uh, you know they probably overlooked his his skills and that they got 
their their ass kicked, and yeah. so that's how he got this hustler. Like you know, he just beat people. Yep. So I, in I, six. Go ahead. I think that like one of the things that like could have given him this hustler moniker was um, was some of the talking during rounds. Like he never shut up. And in a lot of so Jack Nicholas said this USGA doc said uh, said this he didn't like playing with me said I walked too fast couldn't keep up and chatter with me part of his thing to get in someone's head uh, was chattering I never paid much attention to it he was very difficult to play with I just figured stay away from it you know and that's what he would walk purposely fast to stay away from him. Because he knew he was just yakking, yammering away, and and trying to get like it. And then here's Hale Irwin. You knew you weren't going to need to talk that day. Lee was going to tell stories and follow you around. <laughs> like just I, he would he would walk to the other side of the fairway with people, yapping away. He was maybe you, the original Motormouth. Did you? That's a good point. Much. Except he backed it up a little more than Billy Boy. Um, yeah. Did you see the Jacklin like, quote? Really liked it too. Tony yeah, Jacklin. I think so. Yeah. It's like he's you know Jacklin was kind of the British player. He goes, uh, this was a famous quote. They threw out several articles during one tournament. Tony Jacklin paired with Trevino said, "Lee, I don't want to talk today." Trevino quickly retorted, "I don't want you to talk. I just want you to listen." And then probably proceeded to chat him, chatter his ear off the rest of the round. I thought um, the Jack quote was so telling, though, because like he thought Jack perceived it as like he's talking because he wants he wants to talk. And, yeah, and he's, it's a gamesmanship thing. Yeah, because like you know, I think one of the things he would all he was a great self deprecator. You know, he yeah. would he would talk yeah. about how bad he is, and and you know, like one of the things is somebody's talking about how bad they're playing and they're beating you. That's just gonna wear on you. Yep, yep. Uh, okay, continuing on to his path into uh, into professional golf. So this is where he split with uh, Greenwood, the guy who ran the pitch and putt in the driving range. Kind of gave him a little bit of structure in his teens, the job certainly, and encouraged his love of golf. Um, in '63, he applied for playing privileges for his young friend. But because Trevino had no official record, he was turned down. He had no record. He was, was it Tennyson? Was that the, the, the course yeah. in Dallas? Like, he was just playing games there. Um, two years later, after winning the Texas State Open, so 65, he wanted to apply for his card, but Pete Greenwood refused to verify his employment. Neither man will go into detail about their split, but friction had been building for some time. Trevino had been married for a couple of years, had fathered a son, Ricky, and then was divorced when his wife could not cope with his devotion to golf and his long absences from home. In the spring of 64, Trevino went on a savage, uninhibited tear, drinking to excess, eating, in his own words, trash foods, sleeping irregularly, and seldom in the same place. He lost 50 pounds. Quote, my granddad said the only way you forget about a woman is to find another one, and he was right. He found Claudia Fenley, a 17-year-old ticket taker at the Capri Theater downtown. They dated at Cotton Palace Bowling Lanes and soon after were married. So he's on to wife number two by 1964. Uh, uh, one just a lot of drinking, a lot of his drinking text. when he got out of the Marine Corps in, in Dallas, like a big time boozer. But go ahead. One note about the Texas Open win. Um, yeah. The winner of the first ever Texas State Open, Homero Blancas of Houston, said Trevino was hard to beat when he got the lead. He was like a bulldog when he got the lead. 
you may end up beating him, but he wasn't going to give you anything. And what's funny is like Homero Blancas beat him. I can't remember what t- I was in my research. I found he beat him in another tournament. And, and Trevino's response was, I never thought I'd lose to another Mexican. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He was like t- incredulous. He was I like, lost yeah. to another Mexican? What? Yeah, he just what? miffed. All right. So 65, he won't verify his employment, but uh, he does a wealthy cotton farmer named Martin Ledenick, who spent his off hours betting on and attempting to play golf, brought him to El Paso. Trevino Paso introduced him, quote, as my Mexican tractor driver and watched with glee as Trevino ate up everyone around for respectable sums of money. Trevino's lived for a while in a trailer on a farm before moving into a motel hard by Horizon Hills Country Club, where Lee was hired as an assistant pro. So he gets certified, goes to El Paso because he has a backer there. Um, uh, He made extra money by gambling for stakes and head-to-head matches in El Paso. There's like this legendary story that apparently beat Raymond Floyd in some amazing match, in a money match in, in El Paso. Uh, and then, so at the encouragement of like those guys, his backers in El Paso, he starts to uh, attempts to qualify for the U.S. Mm-hmm. Open. And this is like, like there's no tour record, right? It's yeah. like he plays the Texas State Open. He, be, he becomes a club pro. He, so he like, won hey. the 65 and 66 Texas State Open. Um he qualifies for the U.S. Open in '66 in Odessa. He said, "He said of this USGA doc, he didn't have 14 clubs and he ha- didn't have a sand wedge. He said he he said he had never been in a bunker before Olympic Club. Allegedly, I don't know how much credence you want to put in that <laughs> since he won two Texas State Opens. Are they playing at bunkerless courses? I don't know. Maybe they are." But he uh, he said he'd never been in a bunker. The closest thing to a sand wedge he had was an eleven wedge, which you know. Uh, so he was paired. Did you see this? Who he was paired with at Olympic for the first two rounds? Uh, no, no, I don't. He was paired uh, with Johnny have, Miller. Oh shit! So this was wow. Johnny when he was an amateur. How old is and he? he made, yeah, okay. It was this when he made that crazy run. Um, obviously, yeah. it was the the Fleck. Uh, oh, you know, coming back from seven behind Palmer U.S. Open, which was a story along with with Miller and this UCA doc Miller. Miller's like, yeah, I mean, I was play- paired with Lee Trevino. I nobody knew anything about him, but after two days, I was like, holy hell, this guy can play. Right. Um, and right. uh, so Trevino makes the cut, finishes fifty fourth, makes six hundred dollars, which allegedly just went to paying some bills. Um, yeah. Made the cut though. Finished fifty fourth. Yeah. It, it obviously back, borrowed money to play in it. I think from some of those yes. El Paso backers. App- um, apparently twenty dollars to qualify because the next year, sixty seven, yes. he goes back home in, in sixty seven. He's not even he he didn't have enough money, and he wasn't going to play the U.S. Open. Um, but Claudia too insisted upon it and actually drummed up the twenty dollars that he needed to to you know, sign up. Uh, and he goes and he qualifies again. He, this one's at, at Baltusrol. So yeah. this, this, uh, us open, obviously big story was Nicholas who won. Um, this was kind of the ascension of Jack and, and, you know, the leaderboard was insane. Casper's on there. Uh, Jack Palmer's on there. Um, yeah. 
And Trevino finishes fifth. He's 27 years old at this point. He wins $6,000. It gets him exempt into the next week's PGA, next week PGA Tour event. It gets him exempt into the next week U.S. Open. Next year, um, U.S. Open. Next year, next year, U.S. Open. And uh, I watched this little like three minute video of uh, interview of him going back to Baltusrol like whatever years later for the U.S. Open, and he and they showed he's they 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 interviewed him at the airport, like it was like here I I didn't even know where Baltusrol was. I got in a taxi, said take me to Baltusrol. The taxi driver didn't know. I was like Springfield, New Jersey. Is there any place to stay? He just drove him, dropped him off at a at a motel. Uh, the first motel they saw. They yep. stayed at this motel, and then uh, he went. There's a restaurant. He didn't have a car, so he was like, he like went to the restaurant that was right right next door. It was jacket required. He didn't have a jacket, so he was like, where could I go to the hostess? And they pointed him in the direction of a Chinese restaurant down the street called Paradise Valley Chinese Restaurant, and he ate there every single night. Of that tournament, so I missed that. So he gets into the next the PGA Tour event next week in Minneapolis. He makes the cut there, and he made thirteen straight cuts. Which, which just you know, if back in the day that we alluded to this at the beginning, it was top sixty on the PGA Tour. Where you're in every week you want to play. If you're not top sixty, you have to Monday qualify every single week. Unless you make last week's cut. So when you make last week's cut, you're in the next week. And so on and so forth. So he made 13 straight cuts. So he played 13 straight events. He ends up finishing 47th on the season-ending money list. So then he's exempt into the next year. And that's what starts, you know, that's literally his career launches because of this top qualifying in to the U.S. Open. What he wasn't even sure his wife Paid the entry fee, got the, the money. Year. He wasn't going to yeah. play it, and he gets yeah. in. He gets into the, the into the tour because he just plays steady, consistent golf for thirteen straight weeks, makes enough money to be finish in the top sixty. It's kind of amazing. It's it's such an obvious. It's probably more common back then for us. Obviously, we're in our thirties. Like just seeing that pathway of like more or less just qualifying for the U.S. Open is the launch of a career, more or less, basically. Right. I mean, yeah. he, he remained dedicated to the PGA. Like he finally got his card there at 67, uh, obviously earned his tour card just based off of the continuing to make cuts. Um, I thought this was a good quote from one of the backers in El Paso. It says the key to Trevino as a man is that he remembers he's devoted to the PGA. When he joined, he said he'd be the best member the New Mexico chapter ever had. I think El Paso must like be folded into New Mexico. And he has been. Most of the big names pay lip service. This guy's never played. This guy's played in our New Mexico Pro-Am in a blizzard. Every year, he tells me to put him down for one of our sectional tournaments, and he's there. So he kind of kept feet in, like, every world. Oh, I also found the his, quote Yeah, from, his life was crazy. Like, he would, it was he would be always traveling. going back. Yeah, he was always going back to El Paso and, like, getting deals done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I found the old Raymond Floyd in 66 when he was at El Paso Country Club. Floyd was already a, a future PGA Tour star. He beat him two out of three, and he left Floyd muttered away, here I am playing a cart man, a bag storage man, and I can't beat him. So he's just like, like you said, like people would size him up and, and not think he's very impressive, and then you know, play a couple rounds with Johnny Miller, like, holy hell, this guy can play. Uh, should, we, all right. should we talk about his swing real quick before we yeah, get into do that. this major Let's win? T- all right, yeah. I got I got a few things on the swing. 
Um, okay. Obviously, iconic, iconic ball striker. Like one of the best the game's ever seen. Hit hit a little fade all all day long. You know, um, yep. Kirk Pat. Here's Kirkpatrick. In purely technical terms, Trevino's swing is all wrong. He takes the club back on an extremely flat plane from an open stance that's aiming left. To avoid the danger of duck hooking, he blocks out solidly with his left leg firm as he comes into the shot. At that moment, he corrects whatever else is negative by the use of his hands. With this instinctive hand action, which along with the food and white-billed caps is one of the few things Ben Hogan has ever praised, he opens the club face at impact and fades the ball left to right, dipping his right shoulder along the plane. Uh, Hogan said that Trevino was the best ball striker. You know, this was it, Hogan. Hogan he was, he, yeah, it, it was a rare, and he had a very Hogan-like work ethic where he yeah. would just beat balls all day long, hitting the same, and it was very Hogan-esque of like he'd just hit the same shot all day long. Gene Littler, Trevino put the club face on the ball as consistently as anyone I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, they they did. There were comparisons to Hogan. Obviously, very different swings. Like a lot yeah. of people shuddered at his swing. Like that is not how you want to swing. Like it's all subjective, right? That's everybody has their own swing. But there was it was all self taught, right? His famous quote was, "I'll hire an instructor when I can find one who can beat me." I mean, it was all self taught from the caddy days. Dave um, Dave Hill, uh, crazy Dave Hill. Yeah, complete right. psychopath. Yeah. Um, anyway, you want Dave Hill quote? His right side stays so low, he never has to worry about getting over the ball too much. Lee doesn't know it, but he plays with his right arm and right shoulder almost exclusively. He's the best I've ever seen at coming through with the right hand and wrist. Frank Beard. Marvel's Did you see? Is... You saw that if he ever gets up high with it, he's got to yes. go back to eating tacos. This yes. quote got that published. Was... Yeah, that was that was not a racially acceptable term. Dave Hill is an awful human being. He, um, he had some problems. Uh, Jack Nicholas, do you have this yep. one? No, go ahead. I may have it, but go ahead. Only the player himself knows what his weak shots are and which ones he's scared of hitting. If there's a weak part in Lee's game, it's probably the flat swing, not being able to hook the ball when he has to. The swing isn't wrong. It just limits things he could do. When Trevino isn't hitting it straight, he's in trouble because of his flat swing, can't get that high, uh, get yeah. the ball high enough out of the rough. The thing is, I've never seen him when he hasn't, uh, he wasn't hitting it straight. He probably hits more solid shots than anyone out here. Here, This is from the USGA doc later. Uh, I thought Hogan and Trevino were the two best ball strikers I ever played with. They were magicians. They could do anything they wanted with the ball. Well, with Trevino, he couldn't hit a right to left. He couldn't though. hit a hook. I mean, this yeah. was. I, I, so you can. The famous quote was, "You can talk to a fade, but a hook won't listen." Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, this is. We we won't get into the Masters right now, but this was part of it, right? It wasn't just the the fade, which it, it was the low ball, like the low fade, right? He's yeah. like, I can't. This, you know, he said this course is stupid. Famously, yeah, that's part of the sway in the ball flight was what played into his distaste for it. I, I heard a story from uh, a Shore Acres member, an older Shore Acres member about Trevino. Um, it, there's a fifth hole out there. Is, it runs right along Sheridan Road, and there's some trees in between that and the uh, the course, and then across the other roads, the Naval Air Base, the Great Lakes Naval Air Base. And allegedly, 
Trevino, get on that tee and just hit hit one that was started. He'd start it over the other side of Sheridan Road and just fade it back into the fairway. <laughs> That's great. Um, did you? I you broke up for a minute on the reading about the swing. Did you talk about how? Uh, with his instinctive hand action, which yeah. all his food and wipe is the only thing Ben Hogan has ever praised. Um, yeah. Did you talk about when Trevino watched Hogan in '61? I didn't. As he as he hit marvelous fade after marvelous fade, his outlook on the game changed immediately. Before I had always been upright, a picture says Trevino. Then I I got me this awful looking sweepy swing, so I could hook it. When I saw Hogan, it dawned on me: left to right, left to right. I have to throw my club way out to fade it now. I get into that low shoulder turn because of my height. I can't get power upright. Frank Beard said he's a very quick player. He's never in a vice like some of these slower guys. So he's, he's deliberate, but you know, he's not. He's just playing his game, right? He's not, not too deliberate. He would, he would yap, yap around and then, then go play. He also practices more than any human being I know. No. The man works. So it's like a unique style, but also like a, a singular sort of work ethic. I enjoyed uh, the Kirkpatrick line that his swing suggests a lumberjack going after the nearest redwood. That's like just good writing. All right. Anything else on the swing? All right. Obviously, it 60, makes up part of the character. 68 U.S. Open. Um, Torino, so 67. He wins. Uh, 67. He gets through Baldestral, right? Yeah. Wins Rookie of the Year because he made all those cuts. Golf Digest Rookie of the Year, whatever that means. It wasn't like a tour Rookie of the Year. He won what twenty six grand. Gets his card. He's back. He's officially on tour. His second year on tour. Sixty eight U.S. Open at Oak Hill. Oak Hill. So going into that Open at Rochester, this is this is Trevino. Um, I had finished second in Houston to Robert DiVincenzo. Then I finished second in Atlanta to Bob Lund. I took a week off, then played four practice rounds at Oak Hill with Doug Sanders, and he said, man, you're playing awfully good. It's true. When people say there are horses for courses, that course fit me pretty well. Uh, he becomes the first player ever to shoot all four regulation rounds under par at the U.S. Open. He goes At Oak Hill, he goes 69-68, 69-69. Beats Nicholas. Uh, his 275 total tied Jack Nicholas's record. Um but yeah, became the first ever to shoot all four rounds in the '60s at the U.S. Bert, Open. Bert Yancey was leading, and he he had set the 54-hole scoring mark. Uh, Trevino right. was second, going into the final round, one back of Yancey, and Jack is was in third, seven back. Um, Yancey was described as like one of the finest artisans on the PGA Tour, and Jack was, of course, Jack thundering up ahead. Um, you know, and. and We'll get into the details of it, but you know, at first it was considered a fluke, right? It's just like mm-hmm. this is a, uh, I don't want to. That, it was the they wanted. To, I won't cite anybody, but you they, know, one time wonder. But, yeah, they, that's what Jenkins. Jenkins, you could tell was pissed off writing this thing. Like, yeah, he he wrote the SI gamer. Uh, you know, some some racist racist barbs thrown in this thing. Um, yep. and, and you could tell that he was just mad that Jack Nicholas or Burt Yancey didn't win and that Lee Trevino, he was having to waste words on Lee Trevino. So, uh, here's, 
Lee Trevino whipped all of the gringos last week. He mainly whipped a gringo named Bert Yancey, the tournament leader for the first three days in a head-to-head you-and-me thing on the final day, the kind of match a hustler really likes. But in so doing, he knocked off everything else in Rochester, including a good golf course, a strong field, and a couple USGA records that looked untouchable in a 30 grand check. What Lee Trevino really did when he won the Open Championship last Sunday, however, was shoot more life into the game of golf than it has had since Arnold Palmer, whoever that is, came along. Trevino will not only go uh, go out and fight a course uh, for you in the most colorful ways, he'll say most anything to most anybody. He'll hot dog it, he'll gag line it, and he'll respond. In a gang sum of 30 or 40 visor-gripping Burt Yanceys, most of whom seem to be uh, to have graduated from the Yep and Nope School of Public Relations, Lee Trevino had already made himself known to a degree. He had received more pre-tournament press than anybody, anyone simply because he had talked a lot and said things like, I used to be a Mexican, but I'm making mo- money now, so I'm going to be a Spaniard. Well, now, you take this kind of fellow and give him a major championship, and what you've got is an instant celebrity. Good. That was pretty good, right? I mean, still, who's the, like, they referred to him. Who's the little Mexican, right? The, the yeah. little Mexican, right, right on the scene. Um, let's get into some of the other uh, players. So, Nicholas, obviously, one of the four times he's runner-up to Trevino. Um, he, he could not putt Oak Hills. Like, he was just, a as you would expect, <laughs> he was a ball-striking machine. I watched a little bit of it, a few of the highlights, just like, Stone cold, pin high every time. Did not putt great for him. Uh, he, he demonstrated in three previous rounds. This was his fourth round. He couldn't read consistently the subtleties of Oak Hill's greens. Hit the shot, sure. He was hitting more greens in regulation than anyone. He was playing superbly. But the putts didn't fall. Uh, and makeable birdie putt after makeable birdie putt slid, blast, slid past the hole. And a great amount of pressure was taken off of Trevino. So this yeah. is like first time Trevino's in a major and, and in the hunt, really. And Nicholas, the way he was playing, could have really put the pressure on him a group ahead. Jack closed it to three shots early, I think, after the fourth hole. Um, but then, you know, Yancey completely fell apart. Did you, <laughs> did you see, see the close? He was, like, hitting it in the hot dog stand, and he hit it, like, everywhere, right? So, this, is, this is Jenkins. On each, hole, uh, on each hole, Trevino could look ahead and see that Nicholas wasn't catching fire, and on each hole, he could look over in the woods or, the, or in the bunkers or around the cups where poor Bert Yancey's game had gone that away. And this is what Yancey, is in, in parentheses, I guess I must have choked, Yancey said yeah. later. Bert was plotting dismally to 76 that most people in the gallery would have bet their periscopes that Trevino would shoot. This was, but, but yeah, Yancey had like some status, right? They like expected oh, yeah. him. They weren't surprised they, he was they in said first. That, like, he was the only artisan, thing he like, was, the only thing he was missing was a big major win. A rather colorless fellow who cast the image that he's plugging a lawn out there. He took a moment on Friday to worry about the public. After an interview, he went up to Doc Giffen, Arnold's guy, and asked him, how was I? Did I sound better? Did I sound okay? So like total opposite of Trevino, who's like, becomes this star in the media room. He's like yucking it up and telling one-liners. And you got Yancey, who's kind of like, has the stature on the game, but like really wooden. Um, his color is in his beautiful swing. In his background, he's a deep, moody-looking, vague fellow who once had a nervous breakdown while he was enrolled at West Point. 
All he remembers is blacked out and wound up in a hospital for nine months and got a medical discharge. And then he went to Florida State, uh, you know, got made his way into the pro. It's not a Burt Yancey spotlight, but this was like his main antagonist in the in the final round. Dave um, Dave Marr said, "Did you see?" This oh quote? yeah, the, it was about WD. No, before the round. Oh, okay, yeah. Before what? the round, Dave Marr says, "You know, Yancey could play, and you know how badly he wants to win the big one." You just don't know anything about uh, about the jumping bean, Trevino, the jumping bean. Yeah. Um, so Frank racist. Beard on Yancey would say he used to withdraw when he realized he couldn't win a tournament. It's kind of like he was like hyper competitive, but not uh, you know, super. He's a super concentrator, so very different. It must have been very different to have Trevino yapping away. Um, what else? Other characters. Oh, I thought it was interesting. Oh, Palmer showed up with five putters in this event at uh, this 68 at Oak Hill. Uh, but while he there was an terrible, ad, he had to play with the, the Wake Forest, the Wake Forest. Simons, right? I think. Yeah. yeah. He was like, he didn't win low wake or something. Uh, he, but there was an ad in the Rochester paper about it, like for a putting lesson while he was like, and Jake is like, I saw him on the putting green with five putters trying to figure it out. Um, there's another interesting part of the 68 U.S. Open. D- Roberto DiVincenzo was yeah. paired with uh, Bob Golby. This, of course, was after the Masters. Um, and they told this, like, this was, quote, a playoff for the Masters, which DiVincenzo beat Golby 70 to 73. Golby was mad about the pairing before they ever teed off. I walk on the first tee and I get two claps. What do people expect of me? Roberto and I have played together maybe 100 times in our lives, and I got... And people got to make something out of this. I won under the rules of golf. That's all I know. Anyhow, it's not so good to win if you got to spend all your time at department stores. My game's going sour with appearances. It seems like he was, I don't know. He didn't seem in a good place. After, obviously, impossible situation with the scorecard error with the Masters. But I love that they were repaired again at Oak Hill. Did you, um, did you see the Bucky Boy stuff? <laughs> I saw it, but I forgot it. What do you, what do you got on that? <laughs> Bucky Boy. What a name, Bucky Boy. So, this is just this is afterwards. This is after yeah. the win, as Supermax laid it out there for his new band of worshippers. Over in the corner stood a hefty, medium-sized fellow with short, curly hair, name of Bucky Boy. Bucky Boy oh. is a manager like Mark McCormick is manager. Only it is Bucky Boy who is advising the Open champion Lee Trevino and the Masters champion Bob Golby. And it was Bucky Boy who was uh, who was throwing a tequila party up at the Oak oh, Hill yeah. Clubhouse after God. the Open Sunday night, where the new champion talked nonstop on such matters as hitting a wedge left-handed and the value of practicing on a pitch and putt course. Boy also invited everybody over to the Blue Sobrero for a, a Lee Trevino party. Tony, Tony Lima had the champagne. Lee Trevino has margaritas. And golf has a brand new guy. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the round for Trevino. He goes, he, quote, I was trying to get so far ahead I could choke and still win. Like he straight up said that. He almost... Yeah. His 18th hole, he, he hit a hard hook, a hard hook, and then laid, uh, you know, hacked out to 100 yards short in the rough still. Uh, but he was four clear, I think. He thought he was going to make like a double. He made a par, and he didn't even know what he made. Like he got out of the rough, put it to like three feet. 
Uh, I made a par and I had no idea it was for this like first ever player to shoot four rounds in the 60s until like they got the score and they're like, sir, you're the first player ever in the US Open. I mean, it all came undone, almost undone on the 18th. He had the win sort of in the bag, but I again, he's quote, three clear. Yeah. I was I mean, trying to get so far I could choke, so far ahead I could choke. Um, what else do we want to talk about? What the, he, so, he, he seemed to be hanging in there because only no one knew who he was. And he was playing the kind of golf. He wasn't playing like Yancey was. And Trevino on Friday, he drove it eight times in the rough, but his putter kept saving him. He'd walk down the fairways, hollering at friends and strangers alike, saying, what am I doing? I don't know if I'm going to hook it or slice it. But then he would scramble to the green and get the ball down and stay close enough to Yancey to make it a contest. They were paired I mean, together. This on is s- crazy. This is absolute ridiculous, though. This is this is absurd writing. This is this is where I I contend that Jenkins is just pissed off that he's writing about Trevino because this yeah. is disparaging. The guy Yancey set the fifty-four hole scoring mark and Trevino is one back. This is absolutely absurd to contend that he wasn't even playing well. That's true. But it sounded like he was missing much more well, fairway. Why, he just scrambled. So th- later in the in the piece, uh, Jenkins says Palmer, who still drew big crowds, d- uh, finished his catastrophic open at 301 in 59th place. Except for Nicholas, last round of 67, which lugged Jack up the second place past collapsed Yancey. It was not a very good open for golf's so-called big three. Uh, Gary Player, the other member, started with a 76 and closed his performance by falling into a creek on the 10th hole and swimming to 73. Palmer <laughs> and Player were bypassed by hordes of strange competitors. This tells me Jenkins is just pissed off that he's writing Palmer. this. This is like yeah. this is like when when somebody the press tent groans because somebody they know nothing about wins a tournament. This is exactly what it is. But he did say, you know, disparaging Trevino's. But he said he would have set the fifty or tied the fifty-four hole scoring mark, if not for Yancey. And they got tied. They tied the seventy-two hole scoring mark. Because if you removed Yancey and Trevino from the field, the open looked like an open. Nicholas tied for the lead with at least everybody else two over par. Uh, you know, the thick rough, the silica sand, the subtle contours were whipping the whipping the field. An open course supposed to whip the field, but it wasn't doing that to Yancey and Trevino. So it was kind of like almost they they said, literally said it, it felt like an old fashioned PGA match play sort of over the weekend with Yancey and Trevino and, and Nicholas somewhat kind of on the periphery up ahead. Finishes T two. Uh, what happened? Oh, did you read the stuff about John Fellis, the early no. leader? Uh, he's like he he hated writing about this guy. Uh, apparently, like the first day of an open is nearly always dominated by the players who seem like brand new guys. They have names like John Fellis or Steve Spray or Ronnie Reef. There are 150 men in the field. It's tee off at 7:30. Uh, so up until a point well in the afternoon, the leaderboards at Oak Hill looked like the yellow pages. It's like the regulars shadow box the course. Uh, none, however, trudged along under the gray clouds and through the chill winds of Thursday is John Fellis. Little man from somewhere in Pennsylvania, scarcely five feet tall, which has to be some exaggeration. Scarcely five feet tall. He won the color scheme of, of an unknown. So he's like, he was two under. It's just funny. Like he hit it two fairways. He was like going to have the 36-hole lead or the 18-hole lead 
Um, could John Fellis win the Open? The questions were soon answered. He drove the, off the 17th tee like un- Uncle Andrew in an onion, pa- onion patch. He sliced it 100 yards into the rough of another fairway behind trees. He got a free drop because then he hit it into a hot dog stand. Uh, he made double. Like this John Fellis became this early kind of character. Into the And then on 18, he hit another high raging slice off the 18th tee and everybody left him. John Fellis had come and gone. It was time to turn to Bert Yancey and Lee Trevino. So, uh, Trevino, anything else on this U.S. Open win? Uh, that's that's all I got. I mean, he, he was an unknowing. Yeah. He ends like you you not you know, Dave Marr. You don't know about the jumping being. He goes, you do now, and all the gringos do. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a good uh, last this line. Was the start of like the beginning of Lee's fleas. There was a bit of that at Baltus Roll, like they took to him. But he was, yeah. you know, he finished eight back in Nicholas, and this was really the the, the taking off. Uh, and of and they talk. I mean, like Jake has talked about how much different the crowd was. They called them thirty dollar a day guys, you know, in, yeah. in terms of like their their income, right? So it was a completely yep. different crowd. Um, next note I've got is the sixty nine Masters. Okay, what do you got on that? This was this was the uh, the first Masters for Lee that he played in, and uh, the last. By the way, hold on, just real quick, sixty eight. Like they still thought he might be a fluke, you know, like a Michael Campbell or something. I don't, I know the Kiwis are gonna be pissed at me now, but like he won the Hawaiian Open later in the year, finished with one hundred thirty two thousand dollars in prize money. Obviously, much of that at the U.S. Open, but he he. Made a good killing in 68. All right, what's 69 Masters? 69 Masters. U.S. Open win gets him. I I found this in a Matt Cleary article, some small blog. um, Okay. Said, here's his quote after the fourth round. Don't talk to me about the Masters. I'm never going to play there again. They can invite me all they want, but I'm not going back. It's just not my type of golf course. Trevino felt the course didn't suit his prevailing shot shape, the low trajectory, hard fade with a uh, with bite. And uh and he could make a he could make a case. Alistair McKenzie had designed the course around Bobby Jones' high draw. <laughs> Trevino also didn't feel comfortable in the posh country club atmosphere of Augusta National. He put his golf shoes on in the car park. He rarely went into the clubhouse. He boycotted 70 and 71. He was talked into playing again by Nicholas in 72 and 73, boycotted 74, and, and was, ta- was talked around again. In 2009, Trevino said, This tournament is the eighth wonder of the world. I watch it every year, but it's not a great course. Never was a great course. It's oh, a great said that no venue. Nine? Yeah, right. it's a great venue. It's got tremendous amount of history, but as far as a great golf course, it is not. Hated the Masters. He also said, you know, had he not qualified as a player, the club would not have let him onto the grounds except through the kitchen. Uh, but later described it as the greatest mistake uh, he's made in his career. I think he called it a stupid course, quote, a stupid course. And uh, I think that might have been 69. Um, yeah, he, what was it? Oh, at 68, he crumbled the last day going eight over par. On 11 through 13, Amen Corner. He was eight over par in 68. And then we'll get into this in part two, but like he took the first round lead in 89 as 20 years after his comments, and that's like led to just people going nuts. It, he obviously did his not best, hold on in 1989. His best finish ever at the Masters was a T12. 
<laughs> won every other major twice, and then yeah, close. Don't talk to me about the Masters. I'm never gonna play there again. Skipped it. Think about that. Guy is the sportsman of the year. He doesn't play in '71. Doesn't play in '70, 70, '71, or '74, or '77. What's the equivalent now? I mean, is it like? You know, Rory, I'm done with it, or or who, like somebody at the t- very top of the game. It's an incredible stuff. So it's it, it wasn't like Curtis Strange not going over to the Open because of the you know right, travel. Right. This is right. in Georgia, <laughs> and he was traveling all over the place. Yeah. All right. So it's 1970. He wins twice. Um, here's a Jenkins piece. It was about two years ago that America discovered Lee Trevino, or perhaps it was the other way around. In either case, it was all for the good of professional golf. He popped up in 1968 with almost an adolescent relish for the game and swept across the horizon of the sport like a good smell of a whole kitchen simmering with chili and refritos. I read that. (laughs) Trevino had lifted himself out of the ghetto of municipal golf uh, uh, course gangsums and become a U.S. Open champion, but the question remained as to whether he would last. Um, So it's still like kind of like a fluky thing, but he won twice in in 1970. As do most things in golf, the answer came slowly, but it came. And the fact now is that the leader of Lee's Fleas has not only proved he has staying power, but he's become a star of real magnitude, a man capable at times of rescuing the PGA Tour from, shall we say, its occasional vapors of tedium. There is strong evidence that Trevino has brashly played his way into the elite society of tournament golf, that he stands very securely these days up there with the Billy Caspers, Jack Nicklauses, Arnold Palmers, and Gary Players. It just so happens that only one player, Casper, has won more tournaments and more money than Trevino in the 30 or so months that Lee has been out there. Uh, can I go into one more thing before that? Yeah. 69, World Cup. So he went to Singapore and played the World Cup. Uh, this came after he had just like gagged away this uh, the biggest check of the year, this Alcan, Alcan Golfer of the Year tournament in Oregon. cost him $40,000. Uh he would have gotten 55 grand for first place. Um, and this World Cup in 69, they were the, like loving him, just praising him for playing it. All the pros got, they got no money for showing up. $500 honorarium, $100 worth of walking around money, uh, and their airfares p- paid. Um, They're not playing for coin, but for country. Most were happy at the chance. Uh, he had just blown the biggest first prize check in golf history, frittering away a six stroke lead on the last three holes. Luck cost him 40 grand, still goes to Singapore. Uh, Sure, I could make a lot more back home, he said, but this is something special, an honor, a chance to play for my country and meet a lot of nice foreign folks. I'd play in the World Cup every year if they asked me and pay my own way, too, if I had to. I was supposed to play around in the CBS TV Classic in Akron this week, but I told them the World Cup came first with me. If they couldn't change their schedule, then forget about me. They changed. Normally for this World Cup, the U.S. Open and PGA champions comprise it, but Ray Floyd backed out which gave Trevino the shot because uh, to play with Orville Moody, who also played in the Army. Moody, like another Texan, won it the year after him, 69, obviously in Champions Up. But Moody became sort of like the one-hit fluke that they thought Trevino might be, you know? Like the, the long shot qualifier, won it, and, and then certainly didn't have the career that Trevino. So Trevino and Moody play. They got their kind of military history together. Um, but it was interesting 
So Floyd backed out. And they talked about how they were all Mark McCormick guys. And the only McCormick guys didn't play for like, they were going to play for money everywhere. Because Gary Player accepted the invitation and then reneged. Jacqueline, New Zealand's Bob Charles, begged off the grounds for other commitments. It is no coincidence that Floyd Player, Jacqueline, and Charles are all managed by golf's best-known manager, Mark McCormick. McCormick makes sure that his golfers make as much money as possible, which is only good business, especially for McCormick, who takes a cut of their winnings as well as a fee. Whether it's good for golf is another matter. In any event, all of McCormick's big names were missing at Singapore. At the awards ceremony, so Trevino goes. At the awards ceremony, they win. Trevino donated the prize money, $1,000 for low individual and $1,000 for low team, for the establishment of a scholarship fund for caddies at the Bukit Club in Singapore. Just donates all his minis. He was and super Juan, generous. Yeah. Juan like Trippe, the IGA president, International Golf, hailed the move as a wonderful gesture, for, gesture in keeping with the spirit of the World Cup. So, I don't know. Recent events, Jason Day doing NetJets events, and you know, guys only going to play for appearance fees. It was, it was you know, uh, just different motivations for, with, with Trevino. We can get into his charitable stuff if you want to do that now, or, or we can, we'll, we'll get Part to that two. later. Okay. So um, a comprehensive career thing. Yeah, we'll do that later. Okay. Uh, also, one more thing. In April 1970, just to supplement our masters, so he's at Sedgefield. Um, or I'm sorry, they're at Greensboro. Trevino did not play, but everybody was talking about him because the masters was the next week. Augusta officials could not remember when an American player, to say nothing of a leading money winner, had turned down an invitation except for illness. Um, asked last week, what it, what it, when it was he first despaired of playing Augusta National, Trevino said, it was the third or fourth day I was paired with Kermit Zarley. At the sixth hole, I hit a ball stiff to the pin. It landed 10 feet, so this is six, from the hole and drew back off the green 50 yards. I said, Kermit, this course beats me to death, so this year I've got another commitment. I'm going home to El Paso to my wife and children. You tell them I'm going to get drunk and maybe go across the border to Juarez and chase women. I'll watch the Masters on television. So just more of his anti-sort of Masters moment there in 70 all right you read from jenkins in 1970 where jenkins really starts to accept him right yeah. like god you're getting us out of these vanilla tour guys we need this um there's a couple more quotes in there that are really great i thought this can we can i read the one yeah. that's like a summary of, of who like he's really jenkins is falling for him what is embodied in a record like this is a man's mental toughness as well as technical ability to hit golf shots trevino with his fiat slap at the ball kind of swing and his gift had to be flat, slap at the ball kind of swing and his gift for monologue may look and sound casual, loose, out only for the fresh air. But the record insists he is trying very hard on every shot, walking, sweating, competing, and that he knows how to play the shots he stands up to. This simply has to be true. And what this means in turn is that week in and week out, as the tour drones endlessly on, Trevino is more often a serious contender for first money than any other player because he's more often in the neighborhood. So like Jagan's really starting to respect the work. Like obviously he knows how to play. He also busts his ass for all that. Um, it pumps some life into the sport. Trevino achievements are even more impressive. When one considers the furious pace at which he travels. Did you read this already? Yeah. Did you read? Okay. I didn't read I didn't read okay. that, but he, so he travels without his own jet. So we talked about how he just went to Singapore in 69 when nobody skipped, uh, everybody skipped it. Between tournament rounds, he will f sometimes fly to Chicago or back home to El Paso to discuss a business deal. Between rounds. He will then complete a round and speed across town for a clinic. Finish that and speed somewhere else for dinner. 
He'll do a speech, a meeting, or an ex- exhibition in the morning, and then show up at the tournament in time for only three fast warm-up shots before teeing off in the afternoon. But he never complains, which is another part of Lee's charms. A lot of guys gripe about the travel and the food and losing their laundry. Well, no matter how bad the food may be, I've eaten worse. And I couldn't care less about the laundry because I can remember when I had only one shirt. Anything else on the jam? Yeah, I mean, one, that was like other, a... That, what, go ahead. One other side note. This is just uh, a telling, you know, how far, how different we are today compared to then. Um, there's just this little anecdote about the tour. Yeah. Yeah. After all, there is nothing in the Constitution that says there has to be a golf tour. Only a few organizations, for instance, the USGA, the PGA, the Western, have a reason for staging an annual championship. All of the other tournaments <coughs> exist because of charitable individuals or groups, ad or promotion money from the industry, and a few profit seekers. As an entity, it is a $6 million godsend for a couple hundred guys who can do something well. Trevino's attitude, because it is so rare, remains the kind that warms the heart of a tournament sponsor. It's, yeah, it's a very modern commentary. Like, hey, a lot of these events are just entertainment underwritten by a, you know, a charity or a sponsor. Like, they don't need to exist. There's a USGA there's the PGA. There's uh, did he cite them at like the open? The Western. The Western. Yeah, the Western. He cited the Western. All like, right, those need to exist. <laughs> Thank you, FedEx that. Cup playoffs. Uh, a few other touring pros might pause to ask themselves, you know, what would I be without the tour? As Trevino does when they're telling one of the oldest events in golf, the Texas Open, to either accept a new date in the fall. So Jenkins is pissed. They're blowing off the Texas Open. Accept a new date in the fall or get off the circuit. If by asking themselves the question, they somehow find the right answer, they might discover one day that the crowds are rooting as hard for them as they are for Lee Trevino. They also might discover the tour hasn't suddenly disappeared. So uh, that was just like, still, he'd only won one major at that point, but obviously become money leader and stuff. And and Jenkins has really come come on to him with with just, I don't know, his dedication and also his, his commitment to playing all the events, more or less. So, um, all right. all right, so 71. Trevino's struggling at the beginning of the year. Yeah. Like in a bad spot in February. Uh, and Jack Nicholas tells him, you know, like, if only you knew how good you were. I don't have the exact quote. I, I wish I... Uh, it, it, this was a big deal. It gave Trevino yeah. a ton of confidence yep. and uh, really turned his year around and became, you know, one of the, one of the best years in golf history. 1971. Right. Um, right. So heading into the 71 Open, Trevino's won twice, um, and he's had a flurry of high finishes. Jack is the absolute king of golf. He's won eight of the last 33 major championships, and after this U.S. Open, he would go on to win three of the next four. Um, the the nice. other one he didn't win was was the Open, which Trevino won right after, not to yeah. spoil it. Here's, also, here's, Trevino put, put, put we'll do this part too. Stopped him his pursuit of the slam in '72. He won the Open '71 and '72. Stop, you know, everybody thought Jack was going to win the Grand Slam in '72, and, and Trevino pulls it out of Mirrorfield. But go ahead. Um, so here's his his run leading into the U.S. Open. So at Dallas, he tied for second, one stroke back of the leader going into the last round. Finished tied for fifth. 
Uh, Houston, he was 11 shots back after 36 holes, tied for the lead with five holes to play, missed the playoff by one shot. Fort Worth, tied for the lead with nine holes to play, lost by four shots in 15 to 20 mile an hour wins on the back nine. Memphis, he wins. Atlanta, he misses the playoff by one shot. Charlotte, he lost in a playoff. So here we are at Marion for the 1971 U.S. Open. It's, I mean... It's everything you want, right? Is Jack Nicholas and Lee Trevino amateur, in the playoffs? Well, and and, and an Marion. amateur, and Jim an amateur lead, leading fifty-four holes. Yeah, in the in the final in the final group with Nicholas. He what, yeah. Right? He, he but so Simon's just Simon's is a fifty-four hole leader. He shoots sixty-five on Saturday at Marion with two bogeys. Sixty-five. And he so Lanny Watkins was staying with Simon's. That week, and he said, Simon's got ready to go, was walking out the door, and Watkins said, hey, you look great, except your shirt is on backwards. Just to give oh you a little clue how nervous he was. That. Going into the Sunday with, with Jack Nicholas in the final group. And, you know, like, important footnote here. The story is all about Jack and, and Lee Trevino, right? Right. But important Marianne, footnote, but, like, yeah. uh, Simon, he shoots 76 on Sunday, but it is not, like, the 76 that it looks on the scorecard in history. Like, you know, your Wikipedia top fives. He was in the mix. He had a putt to tie and get into the playoff on 18-4 putted. Right. So right. uh, I think it was Jenkins, right? Was sure to call that out. It was yeah. a Wake Forest student with a mop of hair and a bewildered expression. Uh, he did not come apart on the final hole. One stroke behind, he still had a long shot chance to tie. If he could make a birdie, he gambled. He gambled and made a double bogey. His closing round seventy six will look to history as if he choked, but it isn't true. So um, very ahead. important note, you know. Yes. Yep. So we get Trevino, Nicholas, Marion. It's just like. The creme de la creme of a U.S. Open you want. You got Nicholas, obviously, you know, uh, the goat. I mean, the, uh, on an absolute heater, but also a country club kid, right? Trevino had beaten him at Oak Hill. Trevino, not a country club kid. Um, he, playing he, hot, though. Maybe playing better than Jack at this point, right? 71, he had a stronger year total, but even by June, he might have been playing better than Jack. But go ahead. Do you, here's how... Uh, uh, Jenkins set the stage and it kind of goes to like the 68 theme where he talks about all the, the characters that yeah, early rounds yeah, of the yeah, U S open yeah. for three days, the U S open and the marvelous old Marion belong to all of those unusual characters who usually seem to clutter up and open a dog tour veteran named Labron Harris jr. A tall, paunchy transient named Bob Erickson, a guy named Jim Colbert, whose putter looked like a bandage hadn't been taken off, and a young amateur, Jim Simons, who had an appearance of a kid who didn't like his date from pro- for the prom. But then it came down to what everyone knew it would, the superb course acknowledging only the best in golf, and it ultimately was Lee Trevino playing Jack Nicholas one-on-one for the title. Nicholas from uh, from the country club kid from Ohio, our our best shot maker against Trevino, the Mexican from Texas, our best hustler. Still's got that hustler. Best. <laughs> Let's do a little bit on uh, Nicholas. Um, so we had a birdie putt on the last hole, zipping ahead. Uh, you know, there it was the most perfect calendar picture of all. Nicholas at Marion with a 14 foot birdie putt for a 279 in the open. Slid left, missed. Par, par held up and golf had another playoff for the ages. Uh, I thought interesting during the week, 
Palmer and Nicholas sort of uh, snipped at each other, were sniping at each other about Nicholas's pace of play. He struggled to a 72 on Friday and was twice warned about taking so much time to get through his round. Palmer commented on the place, implying it was inexcusable. They should have told him to move up, he said. Nicholas had some remarks to make about the pin placements. They were ridiculous. Barbara, they were ridiculous, he said. On which holes? One through 18, he said. He accused the USJ of trying to hide the pins so as to protect the integrity of Marion, which he said was unnecessary. So this was a big story all week because everybody yeah. everybody was saying that the, like you know how great the course was, but the number two eighty would be smashed this week. Yeah. Early early week rain, um, you know there were guys that were four under after the first round, and that was such a big deal. It ended at two eighty, like nobody broke par at Marion, and uh, you know Trevino had a had a great shot. He he had a, a seven footer on eighteen to shoot 279 and a kid fell out of a tree i saw that he was about to pull the trigger on the putt this the big crashing a kid was standing on a quiet please sign in a tree and fell out of the tree trevino missed the putt afterwards he said he probably would have missed it anyways you know his putter felt like a you know a lead weight or something like that like you know and uh but but everybody always says that threw him off and he probably would have won outright Yeah, yeah, yeah he, the kid, he let him he, off the hook. Yeah, yeah, but like <laughs> that, everybody the else says that you know he, he probably would have made it. Um, you know, Jack. You know, the sixty-eight open was all about how Jack wasn't putting well. Yeah, this was this was the week where everything lined up where Jack Nicholas was putting well. You know, and those were the weeks you always have to watch out for Jack. So we're sixty-eight. You know, some of the tone was you know the great players didn't play great. This was right. Jack Nicholas on on his game, you know, putting great, made putts on 15, 16, 17 that got him into this 18-hole Monday playoff with Trevino. Uh, on Sunday, oh, this is this was the Trevino quote about Marion. He goes, "There are 16 birdie holes, but there are 18 bogey holes. I'll eat the cactus. I'll eat all the cactus around El Paso if anybody breaks 280." On Sunday morning, he thought he would win because, quote, "I'm playing fantastic." said, I've been playing super ever since Nicholas told me in February that he hoped I never find out how good I really was. For the best player in the world to tell me that just filled me up with confidence. And I've almost won every tournament I've been in the last six weeks. I know I can win this thing. So Trevino bogeys 18 on Sunday to uh, force the playoff. But again, uh, Jenkins really kind of explains it away as no choke. He had, it was not a choke with the bogey at the last hole. He was laughing on the tee, teasing his caddy for forgetting to give him his club. You choking already? Lee asked him. The crowd roared. So not exactly anxious, at least. Lee grinning said, you want to give me something to fan this with? The crowd whooped again. He hit a drive a bit too much fade. His three wood to the green was a bit too much club. His chip back from 70 feet, 70 feet was excellent, but he needed a 70 foot, seven footer for par and he missed. Um, whether this was because he became momentarily nettled and had to back away from the, the kid falling out of the, the tree. So he, he said he didn't choke. I don't know. Jenkins didn't blame the kid either. But a 69 and round to 280 for the tournament. He was just glad to be Imp- in the playoff. Important but, note, too. Like, people say that this was maybe Trevino's best round ever. 
Um, considering the circumstances, Tre- yeah, Trevino's golf on Sunday might have been the best he ever played, and this was also validated in that USGA doc. There were numerous players that were like, he he was unstoppable, like just unbelievable that week. Um, all he did was split the center of the narrow fairways and rivet irons right next to those wicker baskets uh, that Marion calls flag sticks. Somebody said Trevino thought maybe they were Pennsylvania. Uh, I this this didn't translate through to the SI vault Pavat, uh, Pavadas. I don't know. Uh, pinata. Uh, it must be pinatas. Pinatas. It had yeah, to be yeah, pinata. Yeah, yeah. These they yeah. were Pennsylvania pinatas. Oh. Another. <laughs> You know, racially tinged line. Um, so they go to a playoff on Monday. Uh, this is where, you know, Jenkins, right. You know, right away you had to feel it might be Trevino's day around Marion's usually tranquil starting hole. The tension was unbelievable. Nicholas was sitting under a tree, his head down when Trevino came out to the tee, smacking gum, rubbing his hands together, pacing, waving to the crowd. And then we have this sort of legendary moment that is, interpreted or was interpreted at the time two very different ways trevino takes out this gag this rubber snake that he kept in his bag it was from like a photo it. shoot earlier and throws it at yeah throws it at jack and go ahead you want to explain it col- so they in the usga doc they interviewed jack yes. so trevino pulls it out he's rousing the crowd with it and jack said he asked him to throw it over to him and this is like yes. this was like a black mark on Trevino. Like people yes. like said that it was gamesmanship. He was he way out of line. line. Yeah. You know, like all this stuff with this. And Jack was like, "It wasn't gamesmanship at all. I asked him to throw it to me." Right. And and total he misinterpretation. Threw it over there. Right. So, but people didn't see that. Yeah. It, it was like you know, Nicholas admitted he asked Trevino to throw it at him, and he threw it at him. A Trevino shoots sixty-eight to defeat Nicholas. Uh, he knew it was coming, but many people in golf thought he had crossed the line of propriety. Uh, he, you know, um, and it was like, here's Curry Kirkpatrick. He goes, the golfing universe did one of two things. Applauded this little Mexican proponent of anti-establishmentarianism or looked down their noses at such an ungrateful wetback. Most of the players were dumbfounded, some unforgiving. They did not know that on the tee, Nicholas had noticed the snake and asked him to throw it. I thought it would leave the tension, Jack says. It relaxed me. No more snakes, Trevino says. Too many people were angry. So this is a sort of like infamous moment that just got totally misinterpreted. Um, and uh, Trevino goes on to whip him, beats him by three shots in, in the one of the great Monday playoffs, or great matchups at least. Yeah, there are a couple couple things that I picked up from that USGA doc. Trevino estimated that Nicholas was thirty five to forty yards longer. He was wow. like, he was like it, it just was a bear to play him. Um, Jack was really struggling with his wedges and bunker play, so he, he Jack went and and went to the Marion like hours ahead of the playoff and was practicing his wedges like forty and fifty oh yard wedge God. shots, thirty yard oh. wedge shots. And then it was an utter disaster on the course. That's one of the reasons that that he struggled. Like you know, he left it in the bunker on on I think two, made bogey, left it in the bunker again on three, made double, hit a wedge over the green a couple other times. Um, and uh, let's see, um, 
this was Jenkins in a class in his classic hustler's way. Trevino topped Nicholas at every opportunity. When Jack birdied the fifth, Lee birdied the eighth. When Jack birdied the eleventh, Lee birdied the twelfth. And when Jack had a birdie putt at, awaiting at the fifteenth that would gain him a stroke, uh, Lee rammed in a far longer putt home first. So there was a rain delay early in the round, which isn't detailed in in the SI pieces. The rain delay, I guess Jack makes a birdie on the fifth, and then the rain hits um, okay. shortly after. Trevino was super happy because he knew his low ball would stop. And, you know, the rain was early in the week at, at Marion, and then it dried out. And Jack agreed a wet course favored Trevino. And so Trevino in this USGA said, to this day, he didn't believe that he would have beaten Jack Nicholas on a dry course that day. Interesting. Wow. That's a and, good. Yeah. Wow. That's a good nugget. So like it softened the greens up and, and then all of a sudden that low, that low low log irons would stop near the flag. And, and, it, and then that eighth hole, he hit it to like, he hit an iron in there that just stopped right next to the flag. And, and it was like, kind of. I think the seventh hole is where the rain hit. And then the eighth hole, it was like a sign that like it was Trevino's day. Uh, Trevino said, I'm a lucky dog. You got to be lucky to beat Jack Nicklaus because he's the greatest golfer who ever held a club. Yep. Yep. I'm a lucky. This guy. I, I mean, granted, he's the best player in the world, probably 1971. But like, this is still June of that year. He's got a U.S. Open at Oak Hill, U.S. Open at. Uh, Marion, and he beat Nicholas was runner up twice, once in a playoff. Won the Barnes Trophy the year before. Yeah, didn't play the Masters. <laughs> unbelievable. Skips the Masters, wins at Marion. Um, all right, so let's continue on. Anything yeah. else on Marion you no. want to clean up? All right. Two two weeks later, he wins the U- uh, Canadian Open in a playoff over Art Wall Jr. I don't have anything on that. We're moving to the Open. We're, yeah. we're closing yeah. in on two hours here. Cleaning we, up. Yeah, we're an hour and a half, but yes, we'll do a lot of big picture in part two and, and sort of the second half of his career. Uh, this I found in like a tra- uh, fan-sided article. So this was what they dubbed the triple crown, golf's triple yeah. crown. They don't have a triple crown, you know, horse racing does, baseball does, but this is the triple crown, three oldest championships of the tour, two opens, Canadian Open, which was 1904. Um, it's believed, which I don't know, I wouldn't take this, you know, as as written in stone, but... That Trevino wins, beats Art Wall, traveled from Montreal to London on Monday after winning the Canadian Open. So that means at best he arrived at Birkdale late Monday night, giving him essentially one day prepared for the Open and acclimate the time difference. Uh, the first, the Open's first round was played on Wednesday that year, not the traditional Thursday start. So I, I don't know. I, I, I need to double check that. But allegedly, I think he left Montreal Monday after winning the Canadian Open. It's back to back with the Open, gets to Burkdale late, and then there's, it starts on Wednesday as opposed to Thursday. He led or co led the 71 Open wire to wire at Burkdale, uh, played the par 73, and his total of 14 under was just enough to win this uh, triple crown in 1971. So let's go into a little bit of the specifics. You have anything you want to interject or you nah. good? All right, Ready to go. here's British Open. This is, I believe, again, Dan Jenkins at Birkdale. I thought it was interesting. 
Burkdale was considered like this. Oh yeah, do you want to sort talk of like Chambers this? Bay or Aaron? Like this Johnny oh. come lately. They did not like it. <laughs> you want? Do you? If you want to, let's let's start, start talk about that right now. Okay, we'll just get okay. this out of the way. So obviously right. now it's like like the place where all the great champions have won, like Burkdale, yes. right? And yep. uh, well, it's like, but at this point. It doesn't have all the great. This building is great championship history, but it is it is slam. Burkdale is slam. Burkdale is what you might call Nuevo rich, said one journalist, referring to the fact that the course only got started in 1889. It is the worst of the lot, they whispered. Not in terms of space, cordiality, clubhouse access, hotel rooms, or the things that help produce the record crowds, but in terms of enchantment, charm, playing quality, and tradition. It got it. It got the tournament. Uh, you know, it didn't. It didn't host the first time because of World War II. That it got the tournament again in 1961, the year Arnold Palmer won, and then in and in 1965 when Peter Thompson upset the strong international field, and again last week, which was when Lee Trevino won. So it got off to quite the start of winners. Still, the Americans thought it was more like one of their own courses uh, than they than any they play across the ocean, which is probably true and principally because the fairways are fairly flat as compared to the moguls and valleys and hidden flagstakes of uh, classic uh, Scottish links. The lack of any real wind from the sea and the slow and bumpy greens made the tournament seem terribly un-British. I've got the U.S., the British, and the... Uh, never mind. That's, that's <sighs> something future. Yeah, that, that, that's a good anecdote, though. All right, so Trevino wins by a shot over Lou... Lane, Lou Liane Juan, or Mr. Lou, as they called him. He beats Tony Jacklin by, uh, by two. Jacklin was kind of his, I don't know, his foe, his foil in this one. And this is a pretty good, right? very different sort of approaches at this time. In the lobby of the massive old Prince of Wales Hotel in Southport, England, last Saturday morning, the incomparable Jenkins, just in love with them now, the incomparable Lee Trevino started winning the British Open shortly before eating his poached eggs. He burst upon a table occupied by his wife, Claudia, and a few friends, a table surrounded by Englishmen, turned his cap around backward like a helmet, and started babbling. Where's Tony Jacklin, he said. Man, he's going to think the German army's after him. It was the same display of overwhelming confidence that Trevino had shown when he faced Jack Nicholas in a playoff for the U.S. Open at Marion. I believe the mechs will get big Jack today, he had said in the locker room before their playoff, and the mechs did. Um, you know what all he, he said to- about Lou, right? Uh, he, 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 amazingly, no one knew who he was, but, he knew uh, he had played with them in Okinawa matches when he was in the Marine Corps. He's like, I know this guy from Okinawa back in playing around Okinawa. That was kind of crazy. Cause obviously the open is like the world's major, right? They like, even going back, this is 1971. Like they want this full international field. So, you know, uh, he knew of Mr. Lou. Yeah, he said. He said I used to play with him in 1959 when I was a Marine on Okinawa. I remember playing him in Taiwan one day, and he beat me something like eight and seven. He's always straight with his drives. So he said he talked about the German army coming to get Jacqueline. Yeah. He said yeah. I'm going to send Lou to the laundry. Uh, not good. Not good. Not good. Not not good. <laughs> I I yeah, left that out. Um. So, yeah, he used to play with them in 1959. The situation was this. Jacqueline was playing up ahead just in front of Trevino and Lou, who constituted the last twosome. Trevino was 11 under par for the first three rounds, was one stroke ahead of both uh, the Englishman and the little hat-tipping 
Mr. Lou, who was rivaling Trevino as the most incongruous sight the century-old Open had ever seen. So, like, he's getting to the point. You've got this, like, this guy from Taiwan and this Mexican-American at the stodgy old Open, right? And, uh, and, you know, Trevino's there in the morning with his hat on backwards. We're talking about where's Jacqueline. Throughout the round, Trevino, knowing his wife and friends were close by, made his comments on various shots loud enough for them to hear. He jabbered all week as he played his shots, something that astonished the British crowds, the British press, and most of the competition. Once on Friday, he looked over at Chipshot, knowing the BBC had a sound man near him, and he broke up everyone with, I wonder what old Henry Lawnhurst is saying about me right now. He probably thinks I got the wrong club. So he... So he took a crack, this was again on Sunday, at the wood shot and it flew high and straight, soaring over the hill, and only knew, Lee knew whether it was sailing in the right direction. Oh my God, he shouted. Claudia and Arnold and Jimmy gasped his friends. Then he laughed. So he would like mislead people. He'd go, oh my God. And then people gasped. He goes, it's perfect. He's like <laughs> shouting down the middle of the fairway. <laughs> One thing we talked about, forgot to neglect earlier, or neglected to talk about earlier, was like, Apparently, coming up, he would always say, like, if he missed a putt, he goes, oh, my God, that thing broke. Crazy left. Yes. Like, it's, like out loud to sort of throw his opponent off, his playing partner, if he missed. The hustler, like, that was this is part of his hustler moniker. Yeah. Then he that just yammered. That was, like, a favorite, favorite thing. Um, all right. It, it was, too, unless you feel that two feet from the cup <laughs> is two feet shy of perfection. I don't know what hole this was on. I should have noted this, where he hit the the perfect wood two feet short uh, it was a birdie his six one punt green six one punt green that was six a six holes. hole that was a six yeah hole. so he so came this out is, this came is out start. super hot yeah. what trevino did was birdie the first hole with a nifty iron out of the rough and an eight hole, eight foot putt uh and this right after jacqueline had birdied it to tie momentarily for the lead he saved par on two with a 15 footer after hearing Jacqueline had double bogeyed, he jammed an iron into the third, dropped an eight-footer for another birdie. He chipped out from under a bush on the fourth and got his par. He wedged in into the fifth and dropped that one from eight feet for a third birdie. And then he absolutely destroyed the sixth, the toughest hole on the cor- course, a cutthroat of a par four that had been cursed all week, even by uh, circumspect Lou, who had said, Green makes, par- uh, uh, makes putts three. Um, so then he birdies the, the six too. Okay. He made a 12 footer. Um, comes out so he, on fire. Yeah. So he makes, it makes, he has six, one putt greens through six holes, two miraculous pars and four birdies. Um, so, <clears throat> so they, they think it's just like, he's going to, cruise right they beaten submission jack jacqueline Lou, um lou's hanging mr lou hunt up he, he goes and jenkins like he had it unless he ran into mr lou or the sand at 17 even if lou sank it for birdie at 17 which he did trevino knew that all he had to do was get up and down uh was had to get down in two for the championship On 18 this is 18 uh, i'm tre- sorry uh, tre- you want to talk about 17 uh, Jen- jenkins called 18 a, a fake par four five Phony, phony par five. It's a, a drive par seventy three, right? A drive in a mid iron for most hitters. That sounds like par fives today. Phony par what fives. Would, who would have guessed? What was the sand at seventeen? He was talking about. Let's see. That that was oh, 
while holding a three-stroke lead, Trevino almost got, got too, too cute. cute. Yeah, he, he was aiming his drive between two giant sand hills, and he he hit it in there. Um, but eighteen, he gets so up. He, he, he gets he down into buried it in the sand. His first slash at the ball with a wedge left him still on the sand sand hill. He finally blasted it out. He laid three in the rough, a long way from the green, on his way to double bogey seven. That could have uh, been totally disastrous. If Lou birdied the hole, they would all suddenly be all even with one to play, but Lou didn't. He made nothing but putts all week, but this one from about 12 feet did not fall, and Trevino held on to the one-stroke lead going into the 72nd hole. So Lou makes a birdie on a fake par five. So a par, if you're you know going by Chankin's definition. All he had to do was uh, get down in two for the championship. He putted up beautifully. And made his last shove in, one foot birdie for 14 under, slung his cap, raced across the green to Claudia. In that moment, of course, he was embraced by not only his wife, but by history as well. The British crowd, which the day before had a misunderstanding with Trevino when he was playing head to head with Jacqueline, who, parenthetically, Jenkins adds, he was called our hero and our Tony. Yeah, Jenkins refers to him as our Tony, the entire article. Like our, or when you say like we, talking about your team you root for, he did not like that. He applauded the cheerful Mexican's victory. On Friday, Lee had been hurt when spectators, apparently misinterpreting some of, some of his comments, laughed at the wrong times of his lines. When some of the more passionate pro-Jacqueline pro members of the gallery showed obvious elation when Trevino missed a putt, Lee said he had felt like going out into the gallery with his putter, but essentially upbeat personality prevailed, and after the tournament, he had kind words for everyone. He donated $2,4800 of his 55 or 13 he donated $4,800 of his $13,000 in winnings to a British orphanage and that night at a victory celebration in the Kingsway Casino in Southport he auctioned off his golf clubs for 600 pounds and gave that to charity too we'll get into much more of his charitable deeds but that won over the Brits and obviously another win the next year at Muirfield which had a little bit more standing I guess on the Rota than Burkdale in 71 um so Anything said, else from that open? Yeah, Go ahead. Uh, f- final quote, which I said half of earlier. I've got the U.S., the British, and the Canadian Opens. But darn it, I've got to wait all the way till October to win my own Grand Slam. That's when the Mexican Open is. You know what? He didn't win. He didn't win the Mexican Open? No. Unbelievable. Well, he won it the next year. He didn't win it in 71. He was so burned out. We can do this and put a bow on it. Like... He wins sports person, Sportsman of the Year with this run, right? He wins two majors, the Canadian Open, wins six times total. Uh, I don't know. What have we seen like this in, in our, like, Rory a little bit with 2014? We'll talk, we'll talk big picture next, next part two. But uh, they play in August. He goes to the Westchester Classic, which was then the richest purse, $50,000 first prize. Um, people ripped Westchester. This is an anonymous quote. The worst thing you can say about a golf course is you can hit a good ball and get burned and hit a bad one and be rewarded. This baby fits the bill. 50 thou first prize makes up for an awful lot, but if we were playing for, say, 49-5, I know a lot of guys would skip it. So Trevino, Arnold Palmer wins it because he skipped the open. I thought this was interesting. He said, I said two weeks ago this was going to happen to Lee, Palmer said upon hearing of Trevino's departure because he, he made like an eight. Uh, and got out, missed the cut. He's just finding out what it's like. Nobody can play at that pace and stay on top. I ought to know. He realizes now what it means to feel obligated to all the people. It takes a toll. 
So, you know, like Arnie's army, right? Becomes Lee's fleas in the 70s. He goes, he realized now what it means to feel obligated to all the people. It takes a toll because um, Trevino was kind of like a red ass at, at this Westchester event by August. He'd already won. Um, he was tired psychologically down and coasting after his return trip from uh, the Open Championship. <clears throat> um, he's he's uh, For Trevino, uh, he, he was his 14th consecutive tournament. 14 straight in a row. He was golfed out and mentally exhausted. Having made a commitment long ago to play at Harrison, Westchester, he felt a duty to show up, especially since he had been disqualified last year when he slept through his starting time. He was obviously not his usual cherubic self. He blasted the tournament marshals during the pro-am, calling him the worst ever. Uh, later to the galleries, he managed to laugh it up before shouting on occasion, can't hit it anymore, wallet's in the way. So talking about the money he's been making. But it wasn't obviously, it wasn't obvious he was dragging and he confided to uh, Joe Iazzi, the original Lee F- Lee's Flea, I can't think anymore. I'm in a daze. No spring, no nothing. Got to go fishing. So he bombs out of that. Uh, but you know, that takes nothing away from the summer and, uh, we'll pick it up part two next time. We're going to do a lot more on like that sportsman of the year award. Some of the writing around his personality. Obviously he's got two more majors in him, two more PGAs gets struck by lightning, three, which is three more majors. Oh, I'm sorry. We're, we're going to do the 72 Muirfield. We, we didn't get to that. Yeah. So three more majors struck by lightning, you know, senior tour career. We'll get into some of his personality. No, it's gonna be two. We'll get into more of his personality, he's charitable, some of the contradictions, like a lot of the talking sort of belies sort of him being a loner and being not necessarily super sociable with his fellow pros. So we'll do that on part two. This hits his US Open. Hopefully it's a nice little appetizer, teaser, entree, whatever it is to get you ready for uh, this week's US Open. So thanks to the Victory Club, usopen.com slash victory club for sponsoring those. We'll be back with more of regular U.S. Open coverage. Maybe maybe another spotlight even, a shorter one. Uh, everyone daily, enjoy. Daily pods. Our wives, wives are rejoicing. Pumped. Super thrilled. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. If you like this, leave a review, re- you know, whatever. Sponsors, support the sponsors, whatever you want to do. Doesn't matter. We'll be back with more this week.